Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all that bad relationship advice using science. I'm uh, Dr. Patricia Robertson. Yikes with that. I'm uh, from out of the <laughs> University of Tennessee. I'm Dr. Jacob Priest. No yikes with that. I'm from the <laughs> University of Iowa. And I'm Dr. Sarah Woods from UT Southwestern Medical Center. Although I just consulted my podcast notes to look at my name. <laughs> That's not <laughs> so triple, triple yikes. <laughs> Today, Jacob is going to bring us something spectacular and surely tons of fun in pop and culture. Then in our academic deep dive segment, we're going to discuss the academic article, parental use of quote, cry it out in infants, no adverse effects on attachment and behavioral development at 18 months. And then in good or bad advice, we're going to discuss advice about coping with child anxiety and stress during the holidays. How timely I hope parents out there. As always, if you have advice that you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. You can email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com, tweet us, Facebook us, Instagram us at attachedpodcast, or just go straight to our attachedpodcast.com website and send us a message from there. Also, we're now on YouTube, so if you prefer to watch videos of our podcast, you can get it there. Please like and subscribe to our YouTube page, and also subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to it right now. So a wonderful, wonderful episode in store, but before we get to all of that, how are you guys doing? So I'm a little bit nervous to talk about this because I don't want to jinx it, but okay. for the last three nights... Our little guy has slept for 10 hours consecutively or more. Oh, oh my nice. gosh. Knock on something. Cheese I mean, crackers. I That's did amazing. not know that that is something oh, yeah. children actually do. And the first <laughs> night, if the first night it scared me. I was like, yeah. wait, it's 3 a.m. I haven't fed him yet. Is he okay? I like walked over to the crib like, okay, he looks fine. I'm not going to bug him. The next night I was just like, oh. I slept for seven hours straight. What is this? What world is this? New lease on life. Oh, I just like, I mean, everybody has told me about like, like the rough sleep in the beginning and then the sleep regression at four months. But I think we're knock on wood, hopefully past that. And to actually get consistent, uninterrupted sleep. I didn't know how much I missed that. Yeah, it is. It is divine. It's nice. amazing how much you can like cope with like little sleep like you're you're like oh I didn't know I could do that and then you get used to it and then afterwards you're like what has my brain been yeah. doing yeah no it has been a wonderful shift so fingers crossed that it sticks around I mean even if it was just like twice a week I'd take it at this point yeah, like totally. that's amazing so so I'll take it but yeah so Yay. because of that we're doing pretty good around here I can imagine awesome and go that going in and, and listening doesn't ever change. Like I have a seven and a four-year-old and occasionally I'll just get like the heebie-jeebies for no reason at all. And I'll go in and just like make sure they're breathing. I'm like, okay, we're good. <laughs> so good. I just, I'm glad you're normalizing that for me. <laughs> no, it's very normal. I, I assume. 
Yeah, it's normal. 100%. It's fine. It's normal. It's fine. Yeah, it's good. It's good. <laughs> Science. <laughs> Woods. I mean, I'm just living this really super exciting pandemic life. I have so many updates to give. <laughs> oh, I've been spending the last few days cleaning. Oh my, oh my goodness. Gosh. I know. It is something that in my old age has become very therapeutic. And I really love the sense that I have when a space is like clean and organized. Mm-hmm. But there's also this guilt of like, wow, I waited like possibly literal months to just put those piles of clothes away or to clean this counter or like why had I just done it my life could have been so much more like peaceful that's that's literally that's the best update that I have right now is that I feel like my bathroom is clean oh my gosh my kid's closet is empty of all the clothes that don't fit and what a delight what an exciting middle-aged life I'm living (laughs) Now go take a hot bath and there's like the cherry on top in your clean bathtub. Maybe a little cup of tea. I don't want to overdo it, but so exciting. Why not splurge? Have a glass of wine. Uh, We literally tried to stay up last night to watch Saturday Night Live, but because the football games were on, it wasn't going to start till 11 o'clock. So we we were like, oh no, that's too late. No, can't make it. Yeah. And we're at central time. It should be yeah. easier for us. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. No, didn't happen. No, I've, I've given up on all watching television on time when it airs. That just never happened. So yesterday morning, got a knock at the door. It was a police officer. Mm. <gasps> what? It was a police officer. And we looked outside and he was asking where, like, what, where our property is. And so... We said, oh, it's right there. So on (laughs) our road, it's a two-lane road that goes in front of our house. Between the road and our front yard is a creek. So our driveway, like, goes over a creek to get to our house. (laughs) And it's a fairly deep creek because, like, when it rains a lot, it'll get really high. And sometimes it goes over our driveway. But usually it's it's quite small. Apparently, uh, someone driving down the road turned into our neighbor across the road um, driveway and tried to turn around to go the other direction and got oh, no. too ambitious and backed up into our creek. But it, so it's big enough to where like the whole entire car was like sideways in the creek. Oh no. I know. They were completely fine. I mean, they were going like two miles an hour. I can imagine they like oh, backed up and they slowly yeah. started going backwards and couldn't <laughs> stop. But so when the when the cop came, which also in itself, I thought it was surprising that they called the cops and not a tow truck for falling into a creek. But that's neither here nor there. So <laughs> the cop was like, is this your property? And my husband thought he was pointing somewhere else. And so he was like, no, 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 that's not us. <laughs> and then we looked, we were just like, of course, like staring like cats out the window. Like, oh, my gosh. There are like three cop cars that are like out there. This is like the biggest thing that happens in like Corrington, Tennessee. <laughs> we were just staring out and we saw where it was. I was like, David, that is, that's us. That's like the us. And he was like, oh, that is us. So he was like, I need to go. I need to go tell him. So he like walks down our driveway and down the road with all these cop cars. And he was like talking to told him he's like i'm sorry i thought you were pointing somewhere else but this is our this is our property and the cop was like oh i just wanted to know if you wanted to press charges and he's like no <laughs> like, and i asked my husband i was like what would those charges be like i'm so confused like this is such a, a dramatic incident 
of like someone just backing up into our creek. Like, I just wanted to know what those charges would be. I was so confused. We're like, sure. oh, we're good. <laughs> like, anyway, two hours later, they finally got a tow truck there and pulled the car out. And the car was so okay that it just drove off. So everybody was fine. It was just super drama early in the morning. <laughs> There you go. In court in Tennessee. <laughs> Sounds amazing. Yeah. Could have been a lot worse reasons for getting that knock on the door. So no, no, a hundred percent. All's well that ends well. All's well that ends well. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And my husband actually, I didn't even hear the door. He came back and he was like, oh, the cop just, I was like, a cop. He was like, yeah, they just knocked on the door. I was like, oh, I didn't even hear it. <laughs> so had I been the only one in the house. First up, hopping culture. We learn about relationships from our friends and family, but a lot of what we think about love and relationships comes from what we see in pop culture. So for this first segment, we take a moment to highlight events of pop culture that influences people's lives and how we view relationships. Jacob, what you got for us today? In our household, it is now time to watch all of the cheesy Christmas movies on Netflix. <gasps> My- Favorite and time of year. I know, Yay. right? I don't know if you all have seen the <laughs> autoplay on Netflix for this one, but Operation Christmas Drop. Netflix has been advertising this hard for me. Uh-huh. I have yet to have time to sit down and watch it, but I'm into it. And when I told my husband, I was like, oh my gosh, look at the type, look at what's coming out. He was like, what? He was like, is this a movie or is this like just some fun thing we're doing for Christmas this year? I'm like, it's a movie. He's like, oh. <laughs> Thought it was like a thing people um, do now. <laughs> well, it actually is a thing people have done since the 1940s at this Air Force base in Guam. Like at the end of the movie, you actually learn that there is a Christmas drop that occurs where they go and deliver like supplies and presents to all that. of these islands in Micronesia. Anyway, so it does have, I was going to say some basis in reality. But uh, not really. yeah, careful, <laughs> not really. careful. I know where we're headed. It's not that. <laughs> So, this is a Christmas rom-com after all. I know I'm going to give a lot of spoilers, but I feel like in these types of movies, there's no such thing as a spoiler. Right. Does it really matter? Like, is Do they a- end up together in the end? What? <laughs> the woman in this, in this movie is a member of a congressional i don't know what you a congressional aide who's buying to become the chiefest chief of staff to this congresswoman um and the guy in this is like this cargo pilot who lives on guam who they call claus because he just brings cheer to everyone and he (laughs) organizes this christmas drop but this congresswoman has feel the sparks i know well not yet not yet this congresswoman has been tasked with closing three bases and one is in her district. So she sends the aide, whose name is escapes me right now, to this base on Guam to figure out where they're wasting money so they can have a rationale for closing the base. Anyway, as luck would have it, this uptight DC congressional aide goes to the beautiful island of Guam and becomes a, a go with the flow, I love how everything is. Everything is okay. Let's love the world as I fall in love with Cargo Captain Claus. And of course, because she doesn't get the report on time, this this congressional aide, the congresswoman flies in, but she actually makes it time just for the Christmas drop, which they actually avoid a hurricane because it's a Christmas miracle. Oh, yes. and, the, and the congresswoman oh, goes on the drama. drop with them and changes her heart and believes that they shouldn't close this base and it's not a waste and that they can find cuts Cute anywhere. music. 
and it swells, and the two people kiss, and it's wonderful. Camera so, rolls out. On the ranking of cheesy Christmas movies, this one <laughs> is real bad. Like, real bad. Like, we have a very low, low bar in our household for television for movies, as you all well know. We almost didn't, we almost didn't jump over this. This did almost didn't jump over that bar. We had to, like, really, like, can we, can we stick with this one? But for the purposes of this podcast, I feel like I, I will to... get through it. Yeah, wait, I'm not going to be blamed for this. I'm not going to be blamed. Uh-uh. <laughs> no, where I was going, for the purposes of this podcast, I want to talk about the trope that's in there and how mm. we internalize that myth about relationships, right? Like, I think that there is a pervasive myth in these movies and our culture at live is when we fall in love with somebody they change who we are, Mm. right? That there's this idea that if I'm willing to change who I am, what I do and give up everything, that must mean I'm really in love. I think falling in love, being in a committed relationship can help you grow, but I don't think it should necessarily change you in that if you are giving up your identity to be with somebody else, if you are changing things you previously liked just to try to be in a relationship with somebody, right? If you are the going to become the chief of staff for a congressperson, but you end up in Guam and because you fall in love, you decide that that's not important anymore. Right. That's a red flag. That's a red flag. So I think that in long-term committed relationships, if you have a partner who accepts who you are, you may change throughout the course of the relationship, but you're doing it as a place of growth where you are becoming and growing into things that you want to do that expresses who you are and your partner supports that. If you are changing the music you like, like, you know, Runaway Bride, you all have seen that, right? Like, how does she like her I have seen that one. I have seen that. Thank you. Right? She likes them the exact same way whoever she's with likes them. And if we... The eggs, yeah. Yes. If we actually think about that in relationships, that's not the kind of change you want. You want to be able to bring yourself into relationship and grow because of the relationship, but not make the relationship change who you are. So don't necessarily recommend watching Operation Christmas Shop because it's real bad. But... Oh, if you've had a couple glasses, if you have a couple glasses of wine, you can't yes. get through it. Yeah, okay, good, it. good to know. Wow, a good healthy recommendation for our listeners. Science. <laughs> Science. Don't change everything about yourself, but do consume wine to get through your romantic comedies. <laughs> <laughs> Just this one in particular. Just this one in particular. Yes. Tacking onto this, an example of actually a rom com that does what you're saying well is uh, an oldie but a goodie, The Prince in Me with Julia Stiles. Are we familiar? Yes, actually. So I I love me some Julia Stiles. I mean, yeah. There's this meme going around that's like, because she was in that movie, oh, no, what was the movie? The dancing movie. Anyway, I, I digress. But in the movie Prince in Me, she changes her whole life and then realizes she's like wait i don't i mean i love you but like i still want to be a doctor and so she leaves and goes back to the states to pursue her degree and like ends up graduating and being a doctor good for julia i to know go. that is the truth i mean and then he comes right i mean there. yeah then he comes yeah, that's not like, how it ends for you yeah, obviously not how it yeah. Ends. Yeah. he's like i yeah. whatever you want to do like I will wait for you. So, I mean, it was still sweet. And then they did sequels, which I cannot make through, make it through the sequels, but that's neither here nor there. But really great Uh, rom-coms are fantastic. Yes, yes. 
Now we're going to move to an academic deep dive segment and talk about an article titled Parental Use of Cry It Out in Infants, No Adverse Effects on Attachment and Behavioral Development at 18 Months, written by Dr. Aiton Bilgen and Dr. Dieter Wolk. This article was recommended to us on Twitter by a listener and fellow family researcher, Dr. Nicole Campion-Barr. Thank you very much for that. This study was recently published in the Journal of, Journal of Child Psychology and Psychiatry and explored whether leaving an infant to, quote, cry it out is associated with how often and how long infants cry for the mother slash infant attachment and behavioral development of the infant. If you're a parent, then you know how hotly debated using cry it out technique is when you have a baby. So many opinions people just throw directly at you. Yeah, right at your face. You don't ask for them, but you get them. Join any (laughs) Facebook parenting group or Google how to get my baby to sleep through the night and you'll find people are very pro or people very against letting babies cry for several minutes before trying to soothe them. The authors pointed out, however, that according to prior research, up to 40% of crying in the first three months of life is, quote, inconsolable, independent of highly responsive proximal care or not. They share that intervention research has found that increasing how responsive a mom is to babies crying during colic crying does not actually reduce crying. So basically, no matter what you do, a lot of baby crying is not necessarily going to stop because of what you're trying. Regardless, this is an area of a lot of popular discussion and something that can be really super stressful for new parents, especially if they're internalizing some a lot of these mm-hmm. messages from these popular cultures and all of these opinions that are just being thrown at you. So apparently this podcast is going to jump right into that debate. Here we are right in the middle, but <laughs> as always. Bring it, bring it. <laughs> doing so using the science. So Sarah, what did this study do to test the effects of cry it out? And what did they find? Tell us all about it. Mm -hmm. So they looked at, as you just described, Patricia, the association between how often parents were leaving an infant to cry it out at any time during the day at term three and six months and the connection between that and how often the infant cried and how long they cried for at subsequent time points. And they also second looked at the association between the frequency of cry it out in the first six months and the attachment, the relationship between mom and baby, Mm. as well as baby's behavior at 18 months. So they recruited families at three hospitals in the east of England. I don't know what that (laughs) means. I love that accent. Please do the rest of the segment in that accent. I don't want to confuse our international listeners. This is a US-based podcast. (laughs) My accent is way too accurate. No, 100%. They'll definitely think, oh my God, is this the UK? New hosts? Oh, a friend. A friend from the UK. So they (laughs) they have their sample fruits. Now we're offending the authors. Now we're offending the authors. It's not true. I think they would be, I think they would be grateful for us really jumping in to multiple debates at one time. (laughs) So the study included 178 infants, 101 of which were male, and they were assessed at three, six, and 18 months. And of those 73, they said were considered to be like preterm or low birth weight, Mm -hmm. but they can, they included those infants in the full sample because 
because there's no difference according to prior research in crying problems or maternal sensitivity based on whether a baby is born very preterm or very low birth weight, which I thought was interesting. The average gestational age was 35 weeks of these infants. 41% were only children. The rest had siblings. And 40% of these families were considered low to moderate income, which was listed in pounds, which I don't understand. So the the mother's... (laughs) average age. Why are they weighing? I don't understand, Sarah. Why are they weighing people's income? Uh, Are they uh, weighing? Oh, Oh, we didn't know we were going to get puns this morning. (laughs) We're not even to the method. So the mom's mom's average age is about 31 and about a third had an education of greater than 10 years, which I assume means they went to Hogwarts. I'm not really sure how it works over there. (laughs) Oh no, we're so bad. I mean, you just did a Netflix Christmas rom-com. I'm pretty sure my referencing Harry Potter is not a problem. It's not, Um, I love it. Thank you so much. So moms were asked to report on the frequency of leaving their infant to cry it out at term three, six, and 18 months. And they reported having either either done it at each of those time periods, never or once, which is considered like the no cry it out parent group, a few times or often having done it often. And then they also asked moms to complete what they called the crying pattern questionnaire, which was reporting on how long the infant fussed or cried during the morning, afternoon, evening, and night in minutes yesterday at each of those time periods and the number of bouts of fussing or crying. So how often they did it and for how long. Then the researchers assessed attachment type between moms and babies at 18 months. So they used the classic strange situation procedure to see how infants responded to their moms leaving the room and they coded attachment disorganization scores. So that wasn't, it wasn't a self-report measure, which is common attachment. It It was an observation measure. So they do, yes. So they have both. So that strange situation procedure is observational. So it's, I think, actually considered experimental almost, right? Right. Not necessarily, but observational in terms of manipulating the mom's presence in a room with the child and then reintroducing that that mom to see how the infant responds to that. But they also ask moms about their infant's behavior. So they did both. So that strange situation, the researchers coded how disorganized the attachment was, the relationship, but they also then did two different observational measures of infant behavior separately from that at 18 months. So they had the infants and moms play together in a few different play situations and rated both moms and infants behavior in terms of like how attentive the infant was, how much social referencing they did to mom and Mm -hmm. amount of vocalization, that kind of stuff. And then a separate 45 minute observation to scale things like how cooperative the infant was, how demanding or difficult they were. It's a long period of time. Yeah, it is. It's a, that's a lot of data. And then they also observe for that maternal sensitivity. So it wasn't just that play piece at 18 months. It was also at three months, they coded moms for positive emotion expression, sensitivity, how appropriate their play was. So they, they had a combination of stuff. And as I said, parents also rated their 18 months old behavior using different questions about how their child behaved. So it was really kind of a wrap around lots of different kinds of assessments yeah. too tease these associations out. Yeah. So what they found was as a study went on at a a baseline, at a minimum, as a study went on, more moms reported leaving their baby to cry it out. 
which makes sense. It's something that I think is typically recommended that if you're going to do it, you wait until infants are a little bit older. Also, babies get exhausting. <laughs> I'm not really sure what the reasoning is, but more, more and more parents did it the longer the study went on. And then I can explain that reasoning. I am living that say, reasoning. <laughs> I was going to say, you introduced how you were doing literally based solely on Lots. your infant sleep. Yep. Yep. It is. It makes a huge difference to your mental health. So what they found was that leaving an infant to cry it out a few times at term was not associated with how often the baby cried at 18 months. And it was negatively associated with how long they cried which means the more that a parent left their baby to cry it out very early on, the less that baby cried when they were 18 months old, hmm. the less, fewer minutes their infant cried. They also found no association between using cry it out during the first six months and the relationship between mom and baby, that attachment at 18 months. They also found no association between cried out in the first six months and behavioral development at 18 mm. months during the play situation, the cognitive assessment, or with the parents' ratings of behavior, which is interesting, right? Because if part of the hypothesis is maybe that some of using cried out is related to maybe mom's own well-being or parents' own well-being, either I use it more because I'm more stressed or I use it more and then I am more stressed. Either way, you think you might even see an association with then how parents rate their own infant's behavior. Like, ah, oh, they're so frustrating, but there, there's no association there. So like in, in total, there was nothing. It's a big, it's a really big, interesting study of almost no significant right. findings, right? No adverse negative effect on infant behavior or the quality of the mom and baby relationship during that first year and a half, which is really interesting. So, I mean, there's no dads in this study, which is, I think, an important limitation this looked at moms. It is also, they reference in this paper intervention research that tries to kind of shape how parents respond to their infants crying. That's not what this was, which could maybe you'd, I mean, that wasn't their purpose, but it wasn't experimental. I don't, I don't know that you can randomize families to like, you shall use cry it out and you shall not use cry it out and enjoy yeah. the first year. But yeah, um, I think you would, it would have to be more of like an educational intervention and not right. necessarily like, um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Like an actual do it intervention. Yeah, the IRB mm -hmm. could be challenging he, yeah. in the states, but right. who knows what the UK will let them do? <laughs> they all get wands when they turn thirteen. So, um, <laughs> they, I, I mean, I think I think it's part of what the author suggests is that using cry it out might not reflect what what some people might think is like neglectful, but that right. instead it might represent this kind of healthier version of limit setting as well as warmth. So helping infants learn to regulate their crying behavior, but still responding when appropriate is like potentially a nice parental balance, which is yeah. kind of an interesting frame. I think if this is a parenting approach that you choose to use and it helps you manage your own stress and it doesn't negatively affect your relationship with the baby, that is I think really important to consider. There's some evidence that the researchers even referenced that using cry it out may decrease maternal depression. And there's no evidence that it increases stress levels in the infant in research that measures like cortisol. So, oh, wow. so if it's something that helps you reduce your own stress and doesn't adversely affect your baby or your relationship with your child, I mean, that's an important thing to consider that I don't think we're getting from mom Facebook groups. Right. I mean, personally, having been a member of a few and then no longer being a member of a few, it's dark in did there. They it can be real out? dark. Did you, did you self-select that or did they kick you out? 
that's a personal question, but only, only <laughs> Facebook and all of Facebook's <laughs> proprietors know. But I think in general, I mean, parenting is very personal. So I think it's really important to find what fits for you as well as respect other people's decisions right. about parenting. And in this regard, if science is saying there's no adverse effects, at least in the first year and a half, it's something that possibly we should be very careful about, about judging parents for. Yes. I mean, I would go as far to say as to not judge parents about it. Not just be careful yeah. about it. Careful <laughs> how you judge parents. <laughs> oh, I was too tentative. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Please well, stop I'm- judging other moms. It's not helpful. Well, and what I love about this paper, besides like the great science, the interesting method they used is the fact that they're taking kind of this cultural myth or like this good or bad advice, as we would talk Mm. about it here, and actually Mm. testing it, right? They're actually saying, okay, does cry it out matter? And it's actually saying, well, no, you could do either. And it's not really going to have this developmental relationship problem creating thing that many people Mm. assume it does. And it's also not going to be even better than, oh, you're coddling your kid too much, right? Like, I think it's important that that type of research is done, whereby people hold on to these ideas about parenting or about relationships or about whatever, and to get the data behind it so that there can be the science, the evidence in there. So parents can make good decisions, not based Mm -hmm. on what they feel like they should do because somebody on Facebook said so. Right. And I mean, do you know how validating it was for me to read in this project that a large percentage of infant crying is not responsive to what parents do? Like if somebody had told me that when I possessed an infant, I would have felt a lot less guilty, (laughs) a lot less of a failure about like, oh my gosh, I I can't figure this out. Why can't I figure this out? Just to see the statistic of like 40% of crying is inconsolable regardless. You're just supposed to hang on as best you can and, and keep them safe. Oh, 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 okay. No, good to know. Good to know. I really would have, could have used that information. Right. I claim it. I claim it. Good title. I claim it. (laughs) Trademark that shit. Yeah, do it. Reading between the lines, like one of the things I kind of take away is also just don't give advice to other parents unless they ask for it. You know, they ask for oh, yeah. it, of course, sure. you know, give what your thoughts are and hopefully it's based in science. But don't go around just telling people what you think about how they're parenting or what they should do. Just sure. be cool, man. Just be cool. Just support them, man. Like, geez Louise. And not just in the UK, like everywhere. Be cool. Around the world, man. <laughs> just around the world, you know, like global cool factor. of like other parents and stuff, man. I don't know where well, that person came from, but that's that's my internal. That's like yeah, my I internal like be cool person. A stoner? <laughs> I don't know. I apologize. Woohoo! Boo! Woohoo! Yeah! Finally, time for good or bad advice, where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture. We hear relationship advice from our parents, family, friends, and also parenting advice, but that's a relationship. So just, you know, it's all inclusive. We see advice about how to be in relationships from movies and TV shows. And we read endless advice spewed at us on the social medias, blogs, numerous top 10 lists, and all of those Facebook groups. But 
A lot of it just isn't actually good advice and isn't really good for our relationships. This is the part of the show where we use science, mind you, to decide if this advice is good or bad. If you have seen or heard some advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. Email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com or tweet us, Facebook us, Instagram us at attachedpodcast or just go directly to that attachedpodcast.com website and send us a message. While you're at it, please like and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app or YouTube. And as always, share it with your loved ones. I'm sure they want to hear this too. So today we are going to talk about an article from verywellfamily.com titled How to Prevent Holiday Stress and Anxiety in Children. It's that time of year, holidays can stress us out, but they also stress children out too. And so here's some advice, some tips for reducing holiday stress and anxiety in kids. First, they recommend set a calm example. The most important way parents can help ease anxiety in children during the holidays is by trying to keep things relaxed as much as possible. As with so many situations, the way parents handle an issue can set the tone for how their kids will behave. If you let the holidays stress you out, your kids will definitely pick up on it and child anxiety is more likely to be a problem in your house. So set a calm example, good or bad advice. Good advice. I think that parents, you know, the way you respond, the way you act is going to influence how your kids respond. Also, however, I think the part of this advice that's missing is kids can also influence their parents, right? Right. This isn't just a one-way street. And like, maybe more so now that the pandemic is still raging, but like, you know, if kids are at school and hanging out with, you know, friends who are really excited about the holidays and all that stuff, they're going to get riled up and they're going to bring that energy home, right? So you can respond calmly. And I think that's important, but also know that anxiety, energy, stress doesn't just flow one way, right? I think it's important for parents who should be better emotion regulators than their kids to kind of set that example. But also I think it's important to be aware of the effects that they go both ways. So overall, good advice. Good advice. Set a calm example. Good advice, Woods. Yeah. I I mean, I also, I think it's good advice. I just am waiting for like, where's the other information about how to tell me how to do that? (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Keep it super chill. Just calm down. I mean, I think this is good advice all the time forever, not just like a holiday specific thing. So I think year round, it's a good idea to set a calm example as much as possible in terms of like, I think our second episode this season, we talked about research that talked about the contagiousness of stress and anxiety, right? That what happened when parents got stressed was that kids got stressed. It wasn't that kids were experiencing these things and independently freaking out and right. That which can happen. But so I think it's good year round advice. I'm just hoping that the next few tips you'll say will suggest how parents should do this. (laughs) Uh, We will see. Okay. Okay, So good advice all around. Next up, set up conditions for good behavior. Avoid taking your children to places such as the mall or holiday gathering when he or she is hungry or tired. It's hard even for grownups to deal with noises and lots of stimulation when they're not feeling their best. Kids get hungry more often and become tired more easily and may understandably have a tough time being on their best behavior and are more likely to experience holiday stress when they're exhausted or 
hungry. Good or bad advice? Well, so I thought first you were going to say, I think Sarah thought the same, like, don't take your kids to the mall or holiday parties. I was like, well, actually, that's (laughs) probably not going to. Anyway, but I do like the caveat of when they are tired or hungry, right? I know from my personal experience, if I am tired or hungry, things aren't going to go well for me. So as the advice says, like, if you can be cognizant of that, if you can make sure timing of when you're going to the mall or have a holiday party coincides with, you know, your nap schedule, your kid's nap schedule or around dinner, that's great. But that's also not always something you have control over, right? Like there is going to, I think part of this should be too, like meltdowns are going to happen and that's going to be okay right? If you're going to connect the two, like kids aren't going to navigate the holidays without stress because parents, adults don't navigate the holidays without stress. So I think it's important to also create that space there, even though you're trying to like accommodate it, make it the best possible, there is going to be times when it just falls apart and that's going to happen and be prepared for that. So overall, good advice. Good advice. Woods? Yeah, I agree entirely with what Jacob just said. I don't know what's happening, but I know. This is happy holidays. Like- <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I mean, I think I also wouldn't go to the mall. Like, had your advice stopped there, I would have said good advice because of COVID. <laughs> we, don't, we don't need to go to holiday parties necessarily this, this December. Sure. But I think, yeah, I think this is one piece of advice that is especially good for grownups also, that we have to put fuel in our tanks to be able to be better parents for our kids. And then that kind of, what was the first tip? Stay calm at all costs or something. (laughs) (laughs) Is that just how I heard it? Keep calm and carry on. Oh, nice job. love that one. They do. That's nice. Yeah. This is a very British episode. The East of England. Yes, they, I think that this is tip number one for how parents can maybe do that. Get as much rest as you can and also keep snacks on hand. So that's good advice. Set up conditions for good behaviors. Kind of building on that one. Remember the importance of routines. The holidays can throw a big wrench into household routines and that can play a role in anxiety in children. To minimize holiday stress in your kids, try to get routines back on track once an event or party is over. For instance, if a school holiday concert, very common, or church gathering goes past your child's bedtime, try to try to stick to quiet, calm activities the next day to get your child to bed on time the next night. So remember the importance of routines. Jacob, good or bad advice? Again, good advice. I think sometimes when you think about a routine, though, it's important to think about, like, I I feel sometimes in conversations I I have with clients who kind of trying to put a routine in for their kids, it becomes almost so strict and so rigid, rigid, Mm -hmm. right? Like that it becomes a way that the parents aren't keeping calm. They're really stressed out that they're going to miss the routine. And if that is the case, like I appreciate the flexibility that they're talking about when they're talking about setting a routine because routines need to be predictable, but they also need to be flexible. I think that's an important thing that kids learn as well is that this is what's typically going to happen. But when other things happen, it's okay. We can adapt and then we can go back to what's typical again. So for me, I'm going to say good advice. Good advice. Woods. 
<laughs> what Jacob was just saying made me think of, I mean, in, in combination with thinking about infant sleep and crying, I mean, I was definitely one of those parents that in an attempt to like, I think control my environment with a newborn. I was like, oh, routine is like, I, that's what I read about. Routines are like important. Like you're somehow in control of this newborn. And when, when she would wake up and cry in the middle of the night, I don't know where I had this idea. I mean, it sounds bananas now. It was so rigid in my brain that when she woke up, I was to like calmly, like get her back to sleep by never like leaving her room. And so I developed it. So I would like pace in this tiny little bedroom, just like, okay, okay. You can get to, I mean, like 45 minutes later, just pacing. And it's like a, like I was a zoo animal. And <laughs> I just remember one night my husband came in and was like, oh, okay. Can I see her for just a second? And then open the bedroom door. Like he was obviously going to get everybody some fresh air. And I panicked like, where are you going? He's like, that's not real. I'm going to just walk <laughs> out now. And the minute, the minute that's he left the real. room, I had invented a totally fake, yeah. totally rigid routine. And it was so unhealthy that I couldn't see it. And he left the bedroom. And I, for a split second, I was angry. And then I was like, oh, holy shit. Like what? Yeah. Why was I stuck in here? I mean, it was, it was bad for a long time or it felt like forever anyways. So I think, I think what you're talking about in terms of flexibility is really important. I think in the context of COVID, I want to almost flip this advice on its head in terms of lots of families will lose routine this yeah. year. Things that kids find predictable families look rituals. forward to rituals. Yeah. And so I think I almost want to flip this advice a little bit in our current context about thinking about how to make meaningful rituals for this year and for how you can celebrate holidays at a distance while keeping everybody safe. And that can be a creative process in families. But I think it's another way in which routines could be too rigid in terms of we're going to go have indoor family dinners because that's what we always do. Screw this pandemic. Everyone gets sick. Do you know what I'm saying? So yeah, flexibility is especially important now. Yes. And I completely agree being flexible in the schedule is really, really important. But I think also it's so easy, especially maybe not with older kids so much like toddlers and beyond, but with, with younger kids, maybe toddlers and infants, a lot of families want to see the, the babies. You get invited to a lot of things. So I think also using that schedule because it is important to keep some sense of, of, you know, daily naps and feedings and stuff mm -hmm, like that. Mm -hmm. Using that as an excuse to not attend every single thing you're invited to, I think mm -hmm. is, is also something that can be good as well, because sometimes it's hard to say no to people, but you know, keeping a schedule, you could use that as a little green card out for a year or, or two, I think is perfectly acceptable as well. It's not exactly what they recommended, but you know, building on it. Okay. So overall good, good advice about remembering the importance of routines. Well, I'm not going to go through all of them, but just a, just a few more, get your child moving. Fresh air and exercise are essential for boosting mood and resettling the spirit, which can alleviate holiday stress and anxiety in children. Make sure you schedule some time to get your child outside to run around and play. Good or bad advice? Good advice, except for if you live in a cold tundra that is the <laughs> Midwest, right? Like, I think it's always smart. I think it's healthy. I think there's evidence to show that like walking in nature can reduce stress, that yes. it's healthy for kids, all of that stuff. But you're going to have to be adaptive too, right? <laughs> like 
if it's December and there's six inches of snow on the ground and with the wind chill, it's negative five degrees, you're not going to want your kids to go run around outside. In that context, you're going to have to be more flexible about what you do and might have to find ways to move and keep active inside. So for those of you who live in warmer climates, this is excellent advice. For those of us who live in cold climates, this is okay advice for about six to seven months out of the year. But don't they say in Minnesota that there's no bad weather, it's just bad clothing choices? Oh, oh interesting. I never heard that. They might say that, but that's it's denial. That's, that is, that's <laughs> like, we had, I don't know, the polar vortex last winter where it was literally like the university shut oh, down. I forgot about it was that. so cold. <laughs> you guys we, have been having like, killer weather there. Yeah. I mean, bad uh, weather. Oh, oh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this this fall has been delightful. Like, it's been a really warm November and all that kind of stuff. But like, it sounds funny to say now, like we didn't leave our house for three days during the polar vortex, which now is normal. <laughs> but <laughs> it was really, really cold. You didn't want to do anything. And so I don't know, that's just... It's context dependent, depending on where you live. Okay, okay. Context, con- good advice, but context dependent. Don't just shove your kids out in the snow and hope for the best. <laughs> Woods, good or bad advice? I grew up in Syracuse, New York. Definitely you shove your kids out in the snow. <laughs> There's no, <laughs> if you don't, if you don't develop the flexibility and routine to be going outside no matter the weather, then you're going to have seasonal affective disorder starting <laughs> at a young age. I just want to counter that piece of advice from Jacob about barring a polar vortex. I think there's lots of outdoor play that many, many people in cold weather climates do, but I'm, I more heard this piece of advice as important for at the family level, family level exercise. When, I mean, you had initially said, keep calm, no matter what, no matter the costs for parents. I think this is another good advice, piece of advice if applied to parents, sleep, food, and exercise are all super, super important for improving mood, for being mood boosters. That's not just true for kids and shoving your kids outside while you then watch like Operation Christmas Drop is not maybe the best the best option. Although it sounds actually, when I say it like that, it doesn't sound so bad. <laughs> but anyways, <laughs> exercise at a family level is uh, probably pretty pretty healing. Stress stress buffering. Can we also just return to the fact that that first piece of advice Sarah has now labeled at time, keep calm at all costs, like, which sounds the exact <laughs> opposite of you. Well, it's just one of those keep pieces calm, of advice that like it. we, it's like, it's like one of those pieces of advice, like a bad piece of advice that we, yeah, I change it. That's bad because it's so, it's such a standard for Hold parents on. of like, here's what you have to do, right? That just, it, that wasn't the, that wasn't the advice. Keep calm at all costs. It was set a calm example. Yeah, sure. I know. That's why I just sure. watched it. She changed it. Like, My point. Keep calm at all costs. Keep calm. Did I mention I was a very rigid, <laughs> routine loving parent? My point is, my point is that like we tell parents this stuff and then we don't tell them how to do that, how to soothe yeah, themselves. And all the rest of the tips are about, now here's how to go out of your way to provide this for your children. Now granted, food, sleep and exercise maybe shouldn't be extremes, <laughs> but it has to start with parents, that parents have to take care of themselves first. I cannot make my child a meal if I am so exhausted and hangry myself. I can't even think of food. It's it's it has to start at the parallel. Yes. So so exercise, getting outside is important, but also for the the family level. Everybody get outside. Take a a couple of 
breaths of, of fresh air, even if when you inhale that air dramatically, it, it sets your lungs afire because it's so cold. Um, you know, just do it. You know, you'll get used to it. It's fine. <laughs> Last but certainly not least, remind your child what the holidays are all about. Are really all about. No, that voice didn't work. Let me try it again. Remind your child what the holidays are really all about. Whatever. I can't do it. You guys understand it. A great antidote for holiday stress and the bloated commercialism of the season is helping others. Whether it's by shoveling an elderly neighbor's sidewalk or by wrapping presents for a needy kid, helping your grade schooler, helping your child become a charitable child will help alleviate his or her holiday stress and anxiety. Good or bad advice? This is good advice. My only problem with it is, is it seems like that it's... This is what we, I mean, we emphasize during the holidays. Oh, reach out to other people, do all this. That should be something that we do all the time, right? I think like the holidays are about that, yes, but also so is life, right? It's not just about consumerism and what I want, when I want. We have to, I think that, you know, if you're going to emphasize this, it shouldn't just be, oh, now that it's November, we're going to start giving thanks. Now that it's December, we're going to start thinking about Mm -hmm. other people. If that's the only context you're going to do that in, I don't think that your kid's really going to learn that, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're going to be more excited about the presents they might get on Christmas than they are about like, I don't want to shovel my old neighbor's driveway. It's freezing cold outside. So Polar vortex again. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, you're, maybe you're not supposed um, to live in Iowa. I got my shirt on today. Okay. Boom. Boom. Jacob's speech reminded me of, we are the world. <laughs> we are the children. What is happening? <laughs> <laughs> this episode just going off the rails. So, like, I think that if you really... Like all of this is advice, not just around the holidays. Like, I think if you took this all together, this is things you should be doing consistently. It shouldn't be something that all of a sudden your child comes and you're like, oh my God, there's going to be way more stress right now, right? There's other stressful times of the year, right? And and so I think that if it's consistent throughout the year, that message is going to come through much stronger than like, mm. oh, it's Christmas. We got to do something nice. Even though we haven't done something nice all year. Check. <laughs> do something nice for the neighbor. Check. Yeah, I see what you're get saying. Get canned food. Quick, get your canned food. Yeah, so, so good advice, but don't just do it around the holidays. Yeah. Okay, good advice from one Jacob Priest. Woods, good or bad advice? Yeah, I agree. I I actually would go so far as that if you start tying this kind of behavior to the holidays, it loses its effect the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, probably a piece of advice I want to aim more at the adults than I do the kids in terms yeah. of role modeling. Pro-social behavior is a very powerful way for kids to learn about doing good for other people. If you're demonstrating that yourself, not only again, would science suggest it can improve your mood and decrease your stress to help others, but your kids can learn potentially more easily and more powerfully by your setting an example. If I see a parent or grandparent volunteering or doing kind acts for others, and I see that throughout the year, it's much more likely I'm going to grow up to be a pro-socially oriented kid and adult. Yeah. So I think that that is a really good take-home message. So remind your children what the holiday 
um, really is all about, but also like the recommendation of setting an example of calmness, set an example of what that should be during the holidays and also throughout. Well, and at this time of year, there's so many different holidays. They're all about lots of different things. Right. So to make one kind of prescription for teaching your kids about what the holidays are about probably presumes one kind of universal holiday. Right. (laughs) But families, holidays mean different things for different families. Yeah. For example, in my family, the holidays mean just eating as much as humanly possible. It's not the healthiest. Mine too. Fantastic. There we go. Well, thanks for listening to Attached. Remember, call us, email us, or get us get at us on all of those social medias um, about any relationship advice you've received and that you're wondering whether to follow or pass on. We cannot wait to talk.